0: All right. If we can wind down our greetings, that would be fantastic. Thank you for greeting one another, and I greet you. Love to be with you, and uh, you know we're already smoking. So I think God's God's got stuff to do here. Um, horizons. I was thinking about uh, taking trips on I five, whether you go north or south from near here. For a lot of places, there's a whole lot of nothing. And you're sort of waiting when when's anything gonna show (gasps) what's that oh it's an overpass okay yeah (gasps) what's that (gasps) it's a restaurant i would never go to okay what (gasps) and uh in the series in in ephesians uh, we're we're looking at how paul resets the horizons of those who are in christ and uh, we have a very very short passage to start off this series because as tim mentioned it's about context. Before we do that, there's a little life context for us. Does anybody recognize this? Have, have you seen this photo? I see two hands. Okay, a few more. Thank you for lifting those high. Um, on our, our Primo projector, it's a little hard to make out, but there's a, a gentleman on top of that escalator, whatever it is, uh, and he's looking in to see if there's somebody trapped in there. We don't know who that guy is, Uh, somebody said, no, no, don't go out into that flood water in Houston. And he said, no, man, my my church isn't meeting today, and so I'm going to go look and see if there are people trapped in, in these, and I'm not coming back until I've checked them twice. Is he a pastor? We don't know. But what we do know is that at least in word and at least in deed, he's got an identity that says where there's a possibility of people who need rescue, of people who are in need, I'm about going there and checking that out. Now, the story could come out later and he could have been, you know, full of baloney. It, this isn't the example that matters. The example is, here's a guy who's, who's got rescue mission on the mind. And that's what Jesus came to do. And so, Paul is, is writing at the beginning of, of this book, and uh, we're going to spend a bunch of time on these two verses, believe it or not, Ephesians 1, 1, and 2. If you want to look in a pew Bible, you can check out page 1133. And uh, you know what? Let's just read this together. If you can see it or if you can pull it out, step aside so Jess can see the screen as well. All right. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus, let's read it out loud, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. And God, as we, as we look at what these, these verses that I personally have glossed over a bunch of times are really talking about, Would you open our minds and our eyes, our ears and our hearts to what you want to communicate to us individually and us collectively as Church of the Valley about who you are, who you've made us, and what you've called us to do. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so uh, again, we're in a Horizon series, and Ephesians is about who we are and what we do. The first three chapters are really about God and what in Christ he has done and how that affects our identity. And the second three chapters are more about how that's applied. And there's a little bit of mix of application and teaching in both halves, but that's roughly how things are split up. Why Ephesians? It's named after the the city of Ephesus. Uh, Modern day Turkey, what's called in the time Asia Minor and it's sitting on this pretty sweet location off the Aegean Sea, right across from Greece. It's a trade center. It's a wealthy commerce city, but even better than that, if you see up on the top right, there's a little circled thing outside the city, and then it's blown up. It says the Temple of Artemis. This is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, was sitting in this town. the people were proud of their Temple of Artemis. It was awesome. And uh, that's going to come into play in, in our backstory a little bit today. But I want you to get that, that picture in your head, and then there's, there's one more thing. Uh, the theater here is going to come into to action. So this is, for its time, a bustling city, a lot of people. It's significant. It's really the premier town in the region. From these three verses, I'm going to, three verses, two verses, I'm going to take three principles. And the first one is that I am who God makes me to be. And Paul is going to explain this in a really succinct way, and I'm going to try to unpack that for you this morning. And I have to give you a trigger warning. There's going to be Greek words on the screen, and it's going to be okay. All right? Seatbelts are on. Okay. Because that's that's what so Paul starts off he says Paul an apostle okay what's an apostle well in in classical Greek which predates the Greek that that our New Testament is written in it would be somebody sent on a ship to send a message so somebody who's, who's a deliverer a, a postman if you a postal carrier there there we go gender neutral language uh, in classical language as well it could be a person who's in charge of a fleet of messengers so an admiral which is why admiral akbar is up there if you don't know who admiral akbar is you're you're fine don't worry about it <clears throat> but the key thing about an apostle is an apostle isn't creating the message themselves they are a sender they are an envoy they are a courier which means somebody else has created the message there's a broadcast happening and the the apostle is the deliverer the carrier of that message and in this case it says an apostle of Jesus of Christ Jesus sorry look what i did all right and we we you've heard this before christ is not jesus's last name you don't look in the phone book under the christs because there's only one because what christ is is a Greek word symbolizing a Hebrew concept, which is Messiah, anointed one. Multiple kinds of people got anointed, but what that word was talking about in Hebrew thought was the king who's going to come and set things right. So when Paul inverts our normal word order here and says Christu Iesu, he's saying Christ Jesus, he's saying King Jesus. He's got what we call a high Christology. Jesus isn't merely a man who taught. He isn't uh, a guru. He's a king. And he's saying, I'm an emissary of this king. Okay? Then he says, by the will of God. What What does that mean? One of the things it does is it harkens us back to actually what Jesus said. At one point, Jesus' mother and brothers come, and they're like, he's teaching all kinds of crazy stuff. Let's, let's get him outside and have a word with him. And somebody, a messenger, comes from them and says, hey, Jesus, they'd like to talk to you. And he's like, my mother and brothers are those who hear and do the will of God. So Jesus was all about, in his earthly ministry, seeing and doing God's will, and teaching people to see and do God's will. And that's that's what Paul is about. So, he's a messenger of Christ Jesus, and it's part of God's will. There's this thing that's happening. So, if if we ask ourselves, in Paul's life, how did God's will uh, being an issue come about? Well, Let me uh, find my reference here. In, uh, In the book of Acts, in chapter 16, Paul actually wanted to go to Asia Minor. And he said, but the Holy Spirit said no. So sometimes the will of God is such that I want something denied. God says no. Boy, we live in an era where saying no is not... Not well received, whether you're a child or or a fully grown, mature person. But Paul accepted a no from God. Later in Acts 18, Paul comes through Ephesus and uh, he wants to stay longer, but he has to move on. And the people say, "Oh, won't you stay?" And he said, "I'll come back if it's God's will." He's willing in in his coming and his going and his staying and his leaving to be under the command of God because he sees himself as a messenger rather than his own free agent with his own message and his own agenda. Paul is a sent one of King Jesus and he takes that seriously in how he carries out his life. Now Paul is what we might call a big A apostle. That is to say, Jesus himself set aside a time to knock Paul off his high horse, so to speak, and say, you're going to go about my business, and somebody's going to teach you what that is. And the disciples of Jesus who remained faithful were commissioned as big A apostles. They were taught by Jesus himself, sent by Jesus himself. You and I aren't that, but every single one of us who's a follower of Christ is a little a apostle. We are sent ones. Are we sent by our pastor? No. Are we sent of our own accord? No. Who are we sent by? The same one, we are emissaries of Jesus. And this process of creating disciples is all about expanding the pool of emissaries and reaching groups who Tim can't reach, who, whomever can't reach, because we're the ones with connections to them. We're the ones who know the groups that they're in. So my first question for you this morning is, where has God sent you? Do you know? Do you have a ready answer for that, or is that a question mark in your mind? Give it some thought. Do you have family members for whom you are literally the only emissary of Jesus Christ? If so, that's God's will for you. Doesn't mean that you need to be wearing Christian t-shirts or hitting them over the head with something. It means you've got to listen to what God does to send you or restrain you. Where, on the other hand, is your way blocked? Now, I just heard uh, from a a woman who, she has three children, and the the two teenagers uh, have said, we're not, we don't believe in God. We're not in with that. This is a problem that, that Christian parents get to deal with at some point. Not everyone, but a lot of them. Her way right now is blocked to be the person who can articulate the message of Jesus Christ to them because she's mom, because she's had her chance over the years. And somebody else in their life right now is going to have to be the person who comes in with a complimentary message who says, here's what Jesus did. Here's how the conflicts that you see in, in your worldview right now were melted away from me and I'm not that same voice you've been hearing. She's not responsible for how they've responded to her message. All she's responsible for is being a representative of her king. She's done that. How are you responding to God's expressed will? If a door has been closed, are you pounding on it? Are you waving your fist at God? Are you kicking people that you think closed it on you? If, on the other hand, the door has been opened, are you you hiding in the doorway? I have uh, dear friends who, right now, they are neither one of them interested in hearing about Jesus. If they ask me what I did this weekend, they're not going to be that interested in in what I say. They're going to hear and then change the conversation. That's just how it is. And all I can do in that situation is say, okay, I'm called to be their friends, I don't know, I don't know what else I'm supposed to do. They asked me what I did, I told them. This week they don't care. But I know from past experience that sometimes they're going to go through a phase that's going to change their receptivity to the message. And they're going to have questions that they don't have right now. And one at least is living a lifestyle that's going to cause a face plant at some point And I know from past experience that that's when he actually wants to think seriously about the existence of a God and God's claims. And guess what? He's my king. I've got a message for him. Serving this king is a good thing. So that's that's who Paul is. And Ephesians is about who we are and out of that what we do. Not what we do so that we can be something. Who we are first. And that outpours into what we do second idea is that I join together with those God brings to me in king jesus so if If you look around this room, go ahead and just take a moment we 've filled in a little bit more than than we were if you came in at the beginning of the service, so if your neck works better than mine does, and you can crane around. We're, I don't want to call us a motley crew, that's not what we are at all. We are a fine looking gathering of intergenerational, interracial people with different ideas, different backgrounds, different experiences. What brings us together this morning? Well, one of the things that brings us together, whatever your motive might be, is that God has brought us together. That may not be your favorite answer to that question, but it's nonetheless true. So, looking at the language again. Oh no, it's another Greek word. To the saints in Ephesus. To the saints, hagias. This word means set apart, and I was thinking this week about what set apart means. Uh, my mother was given as a wedding gift a set of plates. And I think they're platinum, platinum-edged or something, I don't know because never once in her life did we use them. So we're talking set apart, put in the china cabinet, and left there her entire married life. And she passed a couple of years ago, so she doesn't have the chance to use them. Uh, They never had to be cleaned, they were never damaged, but they weren't set apart for the right use. So that's the wrong way to, to think about it. So I thought about something else, which was, my father had some really cool tools. And oddly enough, I didn't get to use the really cool tools. The ones I got to use were the really crummy tools. The ones that I couldn't do any damage to. Well, no, I I managed to do damage to them. And what happened as a consequence? Nothing, because he didn't care about those tools. They weren't expensive, he didn't need to use them, they were surplus. Well, that's not the right set apart either. Somewhere in between is the right idea of this. In in the temple, Israel had utensils that were used in worship and they were set aside. You wouldn't use those for your home barbecue, right? These are for the worship of God and they treated them with great care and respect. And to think of ourselves in a similar role is kind of foreign to us. But if you are in Christ, you have been set apart for a purpose. And part of that purpose is obviously to be a messenger, a little a apostle, somebody who's sent out by the king by God's will to do what God says. All right. Saints. Now, in Ephesus, I've got a question mark there pointing at the address on this. And that's because... We're going to take a short digression here. The manuscripts for the book of Ephesians differ on whether that phrase is in there. And I don't ever want somebody to to say to you, well, the manuscripts differ, and have you go, I never heard that before. It must all be a deck of cards or a, a house of cards and it's all going to collapse. What's astounding is how similar the manuscripts are, but let me explain this particular case. So, what we consider the best manuscripts, they're old and they're well-attested, do not have in Ephesus. Many more do have it, but they're not considered the superior ones. Which one's right? If it mattered for our study of the book, I would tell you what I think, and I'd give you reasons for and against. In this case, I don't think it matters. And here's why. This letter was intended for circulation in Asia Minor. What's the premier city in Asia Minor? Ephesus. Okay, one of the things about this letter that's a little unique is that it doesn't have any, hey, you need to correct this. So there are some letters, Corinthians is one that a lot of people are familiar with because of the extent of correction that was required, uh, in which Paul's giving guidance on specific issues that have come up in church life. That doesn't happen in this book. Another thing that's lacking from this, this letter that, that some of the others have is calling out names. Oh, hey, hi to this person. Hey, that person needs to shut their mouth, whatever, whatever's going on. That's not there. So clearly, this letter was intended to go around to multiple churches and be understood in the region. Now when Paul posted this letter on Facebook, did he tag it with Ephesus or did one of his followers soon after tag it with Ephesus? I don't know. I don't think it matters. What I do know is that it circulated in that area and that it continues to circulate among the church to Santa Clara. 2,000 years later, I think that's pretty cool. Okay, the faithful in King Jesus. That's the, the last phrase of this. Who are the faithful in King Jesus? Let me see if I've got a verse here on this. I don't. What does... Faithful mean in this context. We're we're hardly into the book, so there isn't much context. What faithful means in this context is people who are doing what God said to do. People who hear God's will and do it. People who said, I want to be part of this and are being transformed by the power of God through Christ and are doing something about it. Out of their faithfulness something happens. So this isn't a theoretical faithfulness. This is a belonging to a group, being about what the group is about and being under the kingship of King Jesus. Yeah. How did faithfulness play out in Paul's life? So many ways, but but Looking just at Ephesus. I'm just trying to tell backstories about Ephesus. So in Ephesus, a guy named Apollos shows up, and he's 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 in a strange situation. Based on the Hebrew scriptures, he is affirming Jesus as the Messiah. He understands that much about him, and he's teaching this. And some, some folks who had rolled with Paul who had done ministry with him and made tents with him, happened to be in Ephesus at that time, and they hear this, and they're like, man, he's on something, but he doesn't get the whole story. And they pull him aside, and they go, okay, Apollos, there's, there's more to the story than that. And they talk about Pentecost has come, and we are now in an era where the church exists and where God's people are united in something other than the notion of Jesus as Messiah. And the thing that's amazing to me is that Apollos is clearly a brilliant guy and he listens to these people, okay? When was the last time somebody gave you correction and you listened to them? Just listen. I'm not saying anything. Listened, And then what does he do? He takes it, takes it on board, and he becomes part of the crew. Well. He does so so well in Ephesus that when he wants to go to another town, the elders in this city send him a letter of recommendation. They go, okay, we know this guy and we're sending him with, with our understanding of who he is and what he's about. We know who he is, we know what he does, we commend him to you. Ephesians, I'm telling you, is all about who we are and what we do. But what's really cool is that when Paul is writing 1 Corinthians, he notes that he and Apollos are in Ephesus at the time. So, Paul now is in Ephesus, Apollos has come back to Ephesus, and they're hanging together. And this brilliant, brilliant guy, Apollos, and this brilliant, brilliant guy, Paul, probably both of whom a bit high-personality individuals, are working together they're ministering together. They are on the same team in a way that doesn't cause them to act like they're at war. That's, that's how Paul, Paul built disciples who built disciples. But not everybody was with him. There's two kinds. In, in Acts 19, there are a couple of, of interesting cases. The, the first was the, the classic example, one of my favorite New Testament stories These brothers see that Paul, in Jesus' name, can cast out demons. And they go, cool, let's do that. So they become Jewish exorcists who, in the name of Paul's king, Jesus, cast out demons. And in the incident related in the book of Acts in chapter 19, it doesn't go so well. One of my favorite uh, bits that a, a pastor I, I listen to sometimes does is he, he says, okay, so, so they confront this demonized person and they start the fight wearing pants and they end up without pants. They're, it says they run beating and na- beaten and naked away. He says, if, if you start a fight with pants and you end the fight without pants... You, you lost. <laughs> but what did they want? They wanted the power that they saw Paul wield in Jesus' name. And the demons go, We know who Jesus is. Oh my. And we heard of Paul, but you, <laughs> whack. There was another kind of opposition, people who weren't with Paul, and that was more of a resistance. Ephesus, if you remember at the beginning, they had this wonder of the ancient world, and it was a temple to Artemis, started as a regional mother goddess, and then the Greeks kind of bolted on their, their goddess Ar- Artemis, and, and they had this combined representation. Well, okay, so we already said it's an attraction. So, hey, let's go to, to Artemis world uh, here, here in Ephesus. So you get off your cruise ship, and you get taken, and went, it, probably wasn't quite like that, but you've got silver workers who their whole livelihood is on making idols of this, on making trinkets for tourists, whatever it is. There's an economy that's built around having this wonder of the world, having people worship this goddess, and here comes Paul saying there is one God, one God only, and bam, it blows up their whole economic system, their whole understanding of the world, their whole understanding of the significance of their town. And they're left filled with fury and rage. And they gather in the theater, and for two hours, they chant, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And finally, they're only settled down because the clerk of the city says, okay, these these people that you're protesting haven't done anything. If they do do something, we've got courts. And here's the thing. You've basically started a riot. The Romans don't like riots. They don't send in the the peaceful envoys. They send in troops to quell riots. And so the people who were upset about the proclamation of there being one God and its reception by the people were mad, mad as hell, I'd say, about what happened how it threatened their livelihood, how it threatened their world, and they, they reacted in rage. And the reality is that not everybody is with us. Not all of them will join us. Now, them is a really dangerous word in this context. I don't want to misuse it. This isn't us and them. But this is an acknowledgment that those who are in Christ bow to a king Who those who worship Artemis of the Ephesians don't bow to. And there are conflicting priorities there that until they're resolved, there's not a we in a sense. Now, can, can they be good citizens of Ephesus? Can we be good citizens of Santa Clara? We must be. But understand that that's not going to be sufficient all the time, that there are going to be people who are enraged by how you look at the world who you are and what you do because of it. And that's what Ephesians is about. What is Ephesians about? Who we are, who we are and what we do. Okay. So the sons of Siva who, who were trying to cast out demons in, in the name of Paul's Jesus, they were going through motions. They wanted the power, but they didn't want the relationship with, with Christ. Are you going through motions? Is just being here emotion? It's a gesture. You, you, you give God your your hour and 15 minutes, and, and then you guys are good. Or maybe it's something else. You You serve in the church, or you serve in a ministry, or you help other people. But it's not because of who you are. It's because that's a thing that needs to be done, and you're faithful to do it. I can appreciate that at one level but we are here to serve King Jesus and so I have to tell you that if your intention is to serve King Jesus going through the motions is not what he's looking for so what might God be asking you to surrender as you know him better the Ephesians were being asked to surrender their whole city's identity and one of the pillars of its economy that's a huge deal and here we live in in Silicon Valley where What's produced has a significant draw for people who want to boost their image uh, based on the technology they carry and the way they're able to portray themselves. This isn't a great place if what you're looking for is to go a different direction. Okay. That leads to a harder set of questions. How are you exposed to criticism for your faith if nobody ever complains about your faith i'm just going to say first order explanation of that is either they're unaware of it or the content of your faith is inadequate to cause offense now what was the content of what paula and the the church in ephesus what offended them just the very basic reality that there is one god And he came to earth in Jesus Christ to rescue people. That was all it took. And for many people today, that's all it's going to take. Even harder, I think, is how are you contributing to the commotion inside the church? So nobody's foolish enough to sit here and, and say, you know, great is having this kind of music for two hours. And yet churches fight not just bicker, but sometimes divide over things like that. So the question is, if things, if things are bothering you, are you taking them to the person who can do something about it? Or are you chanting behind the scenes where it's not gonna make a difference? All right, the third thing is, so who we are and what we do together means that together we experience a different kind of life, the life that God gives in King Jesus. And here again, I want to look at the language for a moment. Um, So the the words grace and peace, my eyes glaze over when I read those English words because they're vague. Okay? Grace. Grace to you. You're going to hear that in church all the time. What does it mean? Well, here's a couple of things it means. Um, it's, it's a tangible blessing. And I don't mean it's, you know, here's a check. I don't mean here your back pain is gone because I will testify I've got some this morning. Okay, but nonetheless, I feel like right now I have God's blessing because I, I got to read about his greatness this week. And that's a privilege I, I really appreciate. I get to be on his team as a little tiny a apostle sending the message. That's great. The other thing is that grace from God signifies his approval. And if you know anybody who's been starved for approval, you will know the lengths that we can go to in pursuing that in ways that are super unhelpful for ourselves and others. We we claw, um, we, we pout, we scream, there's all kinds of ways that we respond. And the reality is that in Christ, we have God's grace, His approval, His approbation, He says you are significant because when he's looking at a follower of Christ, he's not looking directly at us. He's looking through Christ. He gets the best version of us. The version that that in Christ, together, we are coming to resemble. Okay, and then peace. Irene. Um, First thing it does is harmonize. So, I don't just mean... We get along. We don't fight. What I mean is we complement one another together. In an ideal scenario, you get to use your gifts and you get to express your passions in a way that complements the skills and talents and passions of other people in the gathering. And then together, we function in a way that's completely different than it would be if we were individually following our own gifting. Um, I guess I should also mention the, the happy dance person. Um, that's not somebody who got hit by a car. That's somebody who's experiencing peace in... in it, it's a little bit like the blessing. Well-being is, is the word I'd use in a tangible way. And, and despite the back, that's how I feel today. I'm ready to you know click my heels together with my quarter-inch vertical jump there. Uh, that's the kind of peace... That Paul is talking about. And then he says, what does he say? He says, from God our Father, which is God is my Father. In what sense is God my Father? In what sense do I get to step toward the, the creator of everything, the sustainer of everything, the one who has a claim on everything, and say, hey dad, there's a familiarity in that that's just, it's almost obscene. And yet, that's what Christ bought for us. And when, when we gather together, we get to bask in that. That's good stuff. All right, last thing. You notice two crowns. That's because Paul uses a different, different phrase here. He says, Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the English translation, Curio e <laughs> Christu, Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, we already said, means Messiah, which is what? King. Jesus is his name. And Kuryo. This is a Greek concept. It could mean something as trivial as sir. Pardon me, sir. Pardon me, Kuryo. But it could mean something as great as an emperor. It could mean Lord God. And in this context, what, what Paul is doing is saying, King, Jesus, King. So, All the things that that together are going to distract us and together are going to cause us to, to mutter and fight and gnash our teeth. When we get the context that we together are serving the king of all kings, that blows a bunch of that stuff up. What does it mean? What does it mean? to be in this situation. In in Paul's circumstance, in Acts 20, I believe, he's saying farewell to the Ephesian elders. And they're crying because they know where he's going, there's danger, and they fear he's going to die. And indeed, as it turns out, it takes a while, but yes, he does. And he is so full of that kind of grace and peace. He is perfectly aware of the danger, and yet he's got a jump in his step because he's got the privilege of living a life that God made him for and called him to and said, Paul, this is your life, and now go and live it. He pursued a plan of King Jesus King. I want to advocate that you and I follow the plan of King Jesus King. So how are you trusting him? in in your family life, in your work situations, in places like school or or your community? And on the other hand, what's the flip side? How are you fighting him? Are you saying, yeah, I know what you want, God, but I don't think so. I want to opt out on that one. I'd encourage you with this quote from P.T. Forsyth from his book on prayer. He says, do not be so timid about praying wrongly if you pray humbly. He's not saying, God, I want to win the lottery. He explicitly says that kind of foolish prayer is not what I'm talking about. So what I'm talking about is when my plan for my life and God's plan for my life are in conflict, just as when we're in conflict, we are to confront one another rather than muttering behind each other's backs, so too when our will conflicts with God's, God can take it. We can bring that stuff to him and say, God, I want to go do this. Why are you blocking the way? Now maybe God's going to open that door. My experience has been that what God does is gives me a new appreciation of what his actual will is and gives me the grace and the peace to harmonize with his plan. And that's, that's what we want. That's what we want for you because who we are about is God. And what we do is for him and by his will. So God gives us life together in Jesus. And that's got to be the identity of Church of the Valley. So we've got to be about doing his will together. Malcolm Muggeridge said, as Christians, we cannot acknowledge a king men did not crown and cannot destroy just as we are citizens of a city men did not build and cannot destroy. We are we are called to just a whole different chain of command than we started with in life and that our community as a, as a larger city and area understand. And that call is going to lead us to action one way or another. And it was so cool to see the Salvation Army driving toward where the flooding was going to be as other people were driving out. It was so cool to see people who take a lot of flack for their affirmation of what the Bible says on a bunch of subjects that are controversial today, and yet they've got credibility because when things go wrong, they are there. And that's got to be the kind of people that we are, willing to take flack for what we believe and willing to step out in faith to do it because that's what we were designed for. So I want to close with this quote. The highest duty and privilege of the earthly life is to do the will of God. (laughs) God has a will for he's a person. He thinks. He feels. He loves. He acts. He's a person as real as mother, as real as the physician, infinitely greater and higher and better to be sure, but a person. And what Paul is advocating for the Ephesians And what we're advocating for Church of the Valley is that we look at that person and we say, God, I want to be about what you have defined me to be, and I want to go do what you call me to do. And God, we together, to the best of our ability, want to submit to that. And where that's difficult, we are going to need your help. And the reality is, where that's easy, we're also going to need your help because we're going to be prideful about where it goes well, and we're going to be insecure about where it doesn't. Would you give us peace that only you can give, and grace and affirmation for who you've made us in Christ? Would you make a difference in us so that we can make a difference around us? In the name of King
1: Jesus King, I pray. Amen. Amen we have the opportunity to respond. It's the first Sunday of the month, and we generally will take communion. And when we take communion, this is not just something that we do flippantly. This isn't just something that we do because we have to do it. But Jesus did tell us to go and to remember him in this. In John chapter 6, Jesus had performed miracles, and people were asking questions, and they were attempting to stump Jesus, which happened often. And it says this, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, not exactly what they were asking, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval, King Jesus, King. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? What a question. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives you life, gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. It's me. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Many of us have probably heard this passage before, and I'm not going to walk through essentially what it means, but it is a piece of why we remember Jesus through communion. It is a reason that we get to come and worship Him. I implore you, do not do this flippantly. And I would also implore you as your pastor that if your heart's not in a right place with the Lord or with others, your brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to not partake. That may not be how everyone sees it, but this is something that we get to do with a joyful heart, just like giving of our offering. And so I would encourage you to come here with your heart in the right place to partake with brothers and sisters all over the world who do this in remembrance of Jesus. In Matthew 26, we see one of the Gospels where Jesus was with his disciples and they were having what we know as the Last Supper. And he said, while they were eating, Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, For the forgiveness of sins i tell you i will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when i drink it new with you in my father's kingdom this morning we're going to partake and we have wafers and we have a cup and here's what i'm going to ask you to do if you cannot get up we have the opportunity for it to be brought to you. And we would encourage you to stay seated. And, and Flora, will it be Katie? Thank you, Katie. Katie will take it to you. But for those of you that are able, I would encourage you to get up as we sing a new song and to drop off your offering if you've come prepared to give, but only if you came prepared. Do not feel guilty. Do not, if this is not the place where you feel that you are led to give, please do not. But we are totally open to you partaking in communion if your heart's right before the Lord. And so I'm going to pray for us, and as this music starts to play, I would encourage you to prepare your hearts and then come up and give of your offering if you're prepared and take of communion. You will take a wafer and you will dip it in the cup, and then you can take it when you feel ready. Father, I thank you for these men and women and children. Thank you for the opportunity that we have this morning to partake in something that for thousands of years we've done in remembrance of you. So Lord, may this be something that speaks to our heart, not just something that we do, but something that because of who we are in you, we get to do. Father, thank you for breaking your body for us on the cross. Thank you for shedding your blood so that our sins could be wiped away. We love you, King Jesus King. We pray this in your beautiful name. Amen.